Hey, this is Jim Fleming, and this is the Stuart Heights Fleming Sunday School Class Podcast. Here, you will find recordings of our weekly Sunday School class, as well as a few other teaching opportunities I get at my church. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your Bible study, to replace your weekly church attendance, or to be your sole source of spiritual instruction. Go to church for that. This podcast is for members of my class who happen to miss a week here or there and don't want to fall behind. But before you listen to this episode, you may want to go to teachings.gym314.com and download student or teacher handouts, as well as any PowerPoints, so you can follow along visually and see what we saw in class, as well as take some notes. Thanks for listening. Come back often, and feel free to add this podcast to your favorite podcast app. I'd recommend Overcast. Now, let's get to this week's lesson. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to week 25 of Romans. Let's jump right in. So we've got um, a couple of things. I've added to your handout this morning um, the outline of the first several sections of Romans. And I wanted to make sure that uh, you saw this because we're transitioning out of that fourth major section into the fifth major section of Romans. So we have looked at Paul introducing righteousness and introducing himself uh, to the church at Rome. We've looked at the wrath of God. There were several weeks and weeks and weeks of this wrath of God uh, against those who are unrighteous. We looked at Jesus as the answer, this saving righteousness that counters the wrath of God that uh, you know, our sin is imputed to us. It's counted toward us in the garden. Uh, the sin of the world is counted as Jesus' sin on the cross. And then Jesus' righteousness is counted toward us uh, at salvation. So that's how that sin and righteousness play together. Uh, and then we've just finished this big section on righteous freedom uh, and all that that entails. Kind of the what does that look like section, chapters 5 through 8. And now we transition because Paul is writing to the church, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles, Paul really starts to focus back again on just the Jews. And if you remember, he did this early on in Romans. He had a section where it it feels like we were talking to a different audience right now. And that was chapter 2, and he transitions into the Jews, and he comes back out, and he talks to everybody, and now he's going to go back into just this conversation with the Jews. And he gets really, really personal today. You can feel his heart. You can feel his anguish, his pain. Uh, so if you hear that in the text, that's we, we believe is really going on. So before we jump into the text, though, I want to review three things real quick. Uh, so review number one, uh, all that God does is good, all that God does is right, and all that God does is holy. Um, today's text, uh, Romans 9, it's most of Romans 9, can make you question one or all of those when we stand in judgment. So when we look at this Romans 9 and we say, I need to assess this, I need to evaluate whether this is good or not, let's let's back off of that and make sure that God is on the throne and He is sovereign and He gets to do what the sovereign wants to do. Um, uh, Review number two, uh, contradiction does not mean complexity. So let me ask you a real quick question. Um, I am wearing a green shirt. Is that a true statement? All right. Is it also true that I am wearing a white shirt? Okay. Is that a 
contradiction? No. no. But if somebody who is listening to this on the podcast hears me say those two things, they, they might have a challenge to kind of reconcile. They might say, oh, well, the, you're wearing one shirt, and part of it's green and part of it's white. No, no. I'm wearing more than one shirt. Now, what did I say I, I was not wearing? Did I say I was wearing two shirts? No, I said what? I'm wearing more than one shirt. Yes, because I am wearing more than one shirt. So I have shirt on underneath this shirt. And Albert's not here today, so I'm going to call him out. So this is my, my new Matrix shirt. I love this shirt. If you hadn't seen the movie The Matrix, you should see this movie. It's fantastic, right? You like that? Now, I'm going to ask you the same question again. Am I wearing a white shirt? Yes. Yes. Am I wearing anything else? What else am I wearing? You're like pants. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, all right, all right. Yes, I'm not up here in just a T-shirt, right? Yeah, don't go there. Yeah. Nothing else is taking off today. Don't worry. Am I wearing any other shirts? Yes. What else am I wearing? I have a white T-shirt underneath my white T-shirt. You know why? Because I always wear two shirts. So I knew when I took this green one off that I still wanted to wear two shirts. So I walked into the room with three shirts on today. Now, is that normal? No. You're like, no. And some of you are going, uh, two shirts isn't normal either, Jim. <laughs> I fully understand. If you hadn't figured out by now that I'm not normal, this is the wrong class for you. <laughs> um, however, just because something is complex doesn't make it a contradiction. So we're going to look at some words today, and you're going to go, well, that's not what the Bible said. It is what the Bible says, I promise you. And it is completely okay that the Bible says two things that sound to our ears sometimes like they contradict. They do not contradict. Let me give an example of a contradiction. Here's a contradiction. I am wearing a shirt, and I am not wearing a shirt. That's a contradiction. Two things that are directly opposed to each other is a contradiction. Romans 9 is not a contradiction with the rest of the Bible. Okay? So let's just make sure. And just in case we think it is, we'll go back to review number one. All that God does is good. All that God does is right. And all that God does is holy. And the Bible is part of all of that. Now, before we jump into Romans 9, I know I'm spending a long time on the intro here, but I think this is helpful. Israeli family history. So I'll give you a confession, all right? I never get this right in my head, ever. It constantly befuddles me. Like, it, it just... The only way I remember this is Dwayne Alsbury, is the only way I remember this. And some of you remember Dwayne Alsbury. And he prays sometimes. And when he prays, he starts his prayers with out of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that's the only way I remember the order is I remember Dwayne Allsbury. All right, so we've got Abraham and he was married to Sarah. They had two kids. The first was Ishmael. Well, actually, they didn't have two kids. Abraham had two sons. He had, well, actually had many sons and I'm one of them, but no, don't go there. All right, so now it's in your head. That's your earworm for the day. All right, so his first son was Ishmael. His second son was Isaac. Isaac's wife that he had Jacob and Esau with is Rebecca. Who was first? Esau was first. first. All right, so we got Abraham and Sarah, the next generation here, the next generation here. So this is going to be helpful as we read today's text because we kind of jump around a couple of different people. And if you don't know this, you're going to read the text and go, so? Like, 
just a bunch of names. No, 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 no. Order matters on this. Order matters on this. All right. So let's start with uh, Romans 9. And we're, since today is the start of a new section, we're only reading uh, today's text. Now, today's text is 29 verses long. That's way too much for one Sunday school class, so we're going to split this up into two classes. But this is one big topic here of God's sovereign choice. So, Romans 9, verses 1 through 29. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. My kinsmen, according to the flesh. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So on your handout, flip over to the backside and look at the very bottom. 
I want to make sure we look at what your homework is for next week because you've got some homework for next week. In case you didn't notice, verses 14 through 29 make reference to a lot of Old Testament quotes. And I will not have time to teach you all of those chapters as well as the whole book of Hosea in Sunday school next week. So glance through those before you come in. That way we're aligned on at least some perspective and I can skip rocks over those passages and focus on Romans 9. So that is uh, the piece that I needed you to be aware of on your handout. So flip back over to the other side. But we are going to look at a couple of different passages other than Romans 9 today. So let's start with uh, verse 1. There Actually, are there any literary or structural observations? Anybody see anything uh, literary about the text that we just read? Verses 1 through 29. I just gave you a tip. He's quoting a lot of Old Testament, yes. In, in today's verses, in Romans 1 through 13, uh, he quotes Genesis 21, Genesis 18, Genesis 25, and Malachi chapter 1. And he does it very fluidly. He just weaves these things in and weaves these things out. And I've got a feeling this is just kind of how Paul talked because this is what he does in almost all of his letters. And hopefully you've been around somebody in your life that can just take Scripture and just weave it in and out, and you realize about... Five minutes later, oh, you were like you were quoting Bible for thirty seconds there. I didn't. That was that was neat. Okay, I'm with you now. Fantastic. I see how you're weaving these things together, and it's just a it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah. So so he's quoting a lot of Old Testament. Why would he quote Why would he quote a lot of Old Testament here? Anybody got any ideas on that? What's that? Yeah, he's talking to Old Testament people that remember the Old Testament and have the Old Testament. Uh, beaten into them uh, again and again and again. Uh, I've taught before on the Jewish um, educational system and how a good, solid uh, Jewish boy living at the time of Christ, uh, by the time he was 16, 17 years old, if he was an academic-oriented kid, would have the whole Old Testament memorized. And, I mean, that's that's a powerful thing to have in your back pocket and to be able to just wield that as, as you will, uh, which is why we think Paul can do what he does here as well because he had the entire Old Testament memorized. He can just, you know, on recall, on demand, pull up passages that he needs. And that's a, that's a powerful tool for the Holy Spirit to be able to use. So Paul's going to lay down a, a lot of doctrine that sounds very New Testament-ish in its conception. And the reality is God has been preparing to tell this story since the creation of the world, since before the creation of the world. He's been preparing to talk about what he's going to talk about here. So let's look at uh, some of the words here. I love words. All right, so look at verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. Which I think is funny. He's this, we're in chapter 9, and he says, I'm not lying. All right, Paul. We, like, I would not have continued reading past chapter 8 if I thought you were lying to us this whole time, right? Which I think it's... So, so it kind of gives you a tip that something pretty significant is coming if the author feels the need to defend himself and his credibility halfway through the book. So let's just... So this should, should be foreshadowing that something big is coming. So I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness. And this is the same word that uh, we saw when Sean taught on Father's Day. Uh, this bearing, this uh, martello, this jointly together testifying. So my conscience in the Holy Spirit is bearing witness that I have great sorrow. You see that word for great? It's the Greek word megas, M-E-G-A-S. 
Um, there's a, <clears throat> and Grace, help me with the cartoon movie that starts with Mega, Mega Mind. Thank you. You let Tim beat you to the punch here? You should be ashamed of yourself. We have invested tens of thousands of hours into movie making for you and watching for you, and I need you on point here, all right? It is a good movie, yeah. It's, it's a strange movie. Um, so what, what does Mega mean? Big, large, huge. Would it surprise you to know that given some of these massive topics that Paul has talked about so far, the greatness of righteousness, the greatness of uh, the wrath of God, the greatness of Christ's justification, the greatness of the righteousness that we get into Christ, that this is the first time the word great is used in Romans. Okay. Really? seems like a really common word like megas, which is a really common Greek word, uh, he would have used many times before, but he hasn't. He's, he saves it for this text. So that I have great sorrow or heaviness. That the, the sense here is that he is, he is hunched over under the weight and the burden of the sorrow here. And unceasing, uh, this is my new favorite word, unintermitted. That's fantastic, right? Permanent, it's without ceasing, anguish or grief or dejection or sorrow. So I have heavy sorrow and unrelenting sorrow in my heart. So he's, he's really sad. Verse 3, for I could wish, so this is the imperfect, so this is something that's repeatedly happening in past time. So he has done this. I could wish or wish or pray, here's your blank, will. This is going to be an important word. I could will that I myself were accursed. The Greek word is anathema. Uh, those of you that have been in church for a long time are probably familiar with this word. It means to be accursed or to be cut off, to be banned. Uh, the, uh, the Catholic Church would say this word means excommunicated. It's to, you, you are no longer a part of this. So Paul says, I will, I, I would want to will that I myself were cut off from Christ, separated, completely distinct from Christ, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now I want you to see what this word is here, this kinsman. This word is uh, um, syngenes. Syngenes. And you look at the word and you go, okay, great. What, like, what in the world does that mean? All right. S-Y-N, if I, get, if I told you the word synergy, synergy means bringing things what? Together. All right, let's break it up into two different parts. Now what does it look like? Yeah. This is like an actual English word, and it means exactly what you think it means, right? Together with genetic makeup stuff. Now, they didn't use it in a genetic sense. We took their word for family, and we made it our word for genetic connection, which that kind of makes sense, because if you already have a word that means that, it means that. So he, we know, like he's not talking about uh, some spiritual relation. He's talking about his genetic family, the, the nation that he is from. So I could wish, I could will that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my family, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. So just in case you, you don't believe this, right? He says, they are Israelites. This is who we're talking about. And to them belong the adoption, the placement of sons, into God's family. The glory. The co- so he lists these different things that are for the nation of Israel. The covenants. 
So the testaments, another way to say this word, the giving of the law, the worship. So divine service and uh, worship of the Lord and the promises. Now this is an important word because this is going to come up several times in this, in this text. This is the announcement or the message or the promise. To them belong the patriarchs. And this is just a word for fathers. It's a typical Greek word for fathers. So who are the patriarchs? Anyone want to guess? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes, this is who we're talking about. So he's, again, we're just, we're literally, literary devices here, just planting little seeds because we're going to mention these things later. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is who? Really, like this is the Sunday school question. Is who? Jesus, yes, the Christ. So, so belonging to the nation of Israel out of the descendants of this nation is the Christ himself. Now, again, we have, I've said this to you several times as we've gone through Romans. Paul believed Jesus was God. And if you need another verse to talk about Jesus is God, this is a great verse to talk about Jesus is God. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God overall, right? This is, there's no ambiguity here. And you go, well, I think they're referring to a different who. The only other who in the sentence are the patriarchs. And if you think the patriarchs are God, you should go read the Old Testament again because they're not. They were messed up sinners just like we are, right? So this is talking about Jesus. And then he, he says this, he, he's going on this rabbit trail a bit, and then he kind of, he digs himself out with blessed forever, amen, right? Have you ever heard somebody uh, praying in public and they have they got sideways and you, you can tell they, they like I don't know how to get myself out and you just say in Jesus name amen You're like okay well we just ended that's good because you needed to stop where you were because you were about to get into theological trouble you, you've, you've heard yes yes okay I don't think he was getting in theological trouble he had just gone as far as the Holy Spirit wanted him here to go and now we're going to come back and get to the point of this text so verse 6 but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, look at your definition here in your handout. This is the perfect tense, which means completed action with the results continuing. So this is not as if something has failed in the past for God and we are continuing to live in the failure of God. Here's what the word means. Dropped away, driven out of its course. And in my mind, when I hear driven out of its course, I think of a golf cart uh, that is being driven where it is not supposed to be driven. Right? Now, how many of you have played golf before? Yes? Do you know where you are not? There's, I don't care on any course you go in America, there's one place you do not drive the golf cart. Where do you not drive? Now, I'm going to guess in this room that Lynn has probably played more golf than anybody else in this room. Where do, you, where do you not drive the golf cart? The green. the green. Why do you not drive it on the green? You tear it up because the green is precious. It needs to be very well taken care of. Like, do you see the heading on the slide? Stay on the cart path. <laughs> There's a little sign that you see, and it says, stay on the path. Right. And really nice golf courses will have little flags out that will tell you, you can get off the path up to this point, but at this point, you have to stay on the path because they actually care about the course and they want it to be maintained well. So this is the image I want in your head as we go through the rest of this particular text. All right. So it's not as though the Word of God has failed. It's not as though the Word of God has gotten off of the path. You with me? 
So God's still on path. All right? So let's keep going. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Wait, what? Because that sounds an awful lot like I am wearing a shirt and I am not wearing a shirt. And that's not what he's saying. He's going to go explain. And I love this about Paul because he didn't, he didn't let us wallow around in like what's going on here very long. So verse 7, and not all are children. Now, I want you to look very specific at the meaning of this word. This word means children. It means daughters and sons. It's a very simple word. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Do you see the Greek word? Everybody clear on what we're talking about? This is genetic family relationships. So you are not necessarily daughters and sons of Abraham because you are of his physical descendants. Now, think about this if you're hearing this and you're a Jewish person. (laughs) Oh, oh, but I beg to differ, dear Paul. I will say that I am a daughter and son of Abraham because of my lineage. Because this is what I have been taught my entire life. I can actually quote my genealogy all the way back to the land rights that were given to me in the Old Testament. I know which piece of property is mine. I am a son or daughter of Abraham. And Paul has to set the record straight here. And just as some parts of Romans 9 are not very appealing to our ears, this part would have been incredibly offensive to a New Testament Jew. So, let's keep going. But, and then we have a highlighted portion here. So, who's got Genesis 21, 12? Anybody got it? You knew we were coming to it. If it's highlighted, we're going to it. Some of you are like, Jim, we haven't turned pages in Sunday school in so long. I know. I can't let us forget where the Old Testament is. We have to like make reference to it periodically. So, Genesis twenty-one twelve. I want to see how well Paul quotes the Old Testament. I want to because I told you before he had it memorized. I want to see if we if we actually got it memorized. You got Genesis twenty-one twelve. Yeah. But God said to Abraham, "Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you." For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So I'm going to get the quote right. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And what does he say in the New Testament? Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. All right, cool. Well, it feels like Paul knew his Old Testament right there. So one point for Paul. And what's the word for offspring? Sperma, right? So we're talking about the physical descendants are going to be named from your offspring. So I'm going to go back. <clears throat> what is, uh, and somebody said it a while ago, what is Jacob's most famous son's name? Joseph. Yes. Does Jacob have a different name? Israel. Israel, yes. Through your genetic descendants shall your offspring be named so we're going to call the whole nation by... Oh, okay. All right, so he got the quote right in Genesis 21, 12. So through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And this means... So again, thank you, Paul. Right? 
So this means, he's getting real basic, he's going to explain to us what this means. This means that it is, right now, not the children of the flesh, so it's not the physical body who are the children, or the sons or the daughters, but the children of the promise. Remember, I told you that word was going to be important. Because did God make any promises to Abraham? Yes, he did. And they are very, very important for us. They help us put the New Testament promises in context. So the children of the promise are what? Counted. Anybody want to guess what my word is? Legizomai. That's right. It's my, I think that's one of my favorite words in Romans right now. This is that, uh, that accounting term, the uh, inventory or estimated or concluded, esteemed, imputed, numbered, reason, reckoned. It's the same word that's been used uh, more than a dozen times so far in Romans. The children of the promise are counted as what? Offspring. Offspring. As genetic descendants. For this is what the promise said. So just in case you're like, I'm not really sure I remember. The, what promise are we talking about? Paul's going to quote the promise. So Genesis 18.10. You got it, Miss Amy? Yeah, she's ready. I knew somebody had it. I saw some, a, look on, a smug look on somebody's face a while ago, and I couldn't remember who it was. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Excellent. And about this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Did he get the quote right? Yep. He got the quote right. We have validation. Good. So he got Genesis 18.10 right. So how many kids had Sarah had at this point? Goose egg. Now how old is Sarah at this point? At that, at that time of that conversation, she's 99, I think, right? Like, way past. <laughs> like, like, at that point in the Old Testament, this was not the time of people live for 800, 900 years. We are... We are we are, which way am I going? We're way past that. <laughs> yeah, we're down to the 120 kind of maxing out thing, right? Pretty consistent with where we are today in, in our world. So she's too old to be having this. And what happens? Isaac. Awesome. So did God keep his promise? Yes. That's a question that the answer is always yes. Verse 10. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived. So God kept his promise here, and now he's going to get into something that's going to make our brains hurt a little bit. When Rebekah had conceived. Now, somebody tell me something about Jacob and Esau. They were related, right? Yes. They were very related. They were twins, yes, very much so. Now, based on the description of the Bible, do we think they were identical twins? No. Probably not, right? Because they really, like, they're, as men, great differences. Jacob was a smooth-skinned man. You kind of get this idea that he uh, moisturized every day. And Esau was a hairy man. You kind of get the idea that he shouldn't take his shirt off because it just like, oh. You know, he probably had an epic Leonidas beard. And, you know, he's a hunter, and he's going to kill something. And he's got dirt under his fingernails. And why would you cut them? I mean, any of those to kill things with, right? Probably... Like sharpening them down. I mean, they're, they're not similar people in any way, shape, or form. But who was born first? Esau. Esau was born first. And who gets the birthright? Jacob ends up with the birthright. He does. So 
Look at verse 10. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or beneficial or bad, uh, flawy is a new famous word of mine here. This is, I love this word, flawy. In order that God's purpose or proposal or intention, this is the word we talked about, was it last week that I made the bread or the week before? Two weeks ago. You taught last week. Yes, thank you. for the, You did a great job. Thank you for that. The, the, the showbread, this is that word, the showing off that God's purpose of election or choosing or selection might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So when God made the statement, he makes a statement here in Genesis 25, 32. She was told the older will serve the younger. When does God make that statement? Before they are born. After they're conceived, before they're born. So there's there's some nine-month period here where God is making this statement. Have they made any actions yet before you are born? After, like you haven't, like what, what have you done at that point? You're, you're hanging out and growing. They're struggling, yes, they are. But have they committed any sin at this point? Like they're, sti- like they're still in the, I mean, come on, right? I mean, now, good, Josh, good. I want your brain to do that, good. It revolted at that statement. It should revolt at that statement. We're going to come back to that next week. As it is written, we're going to get to that in a second. So when did God choose? Before the foundation of the world, yes. The question is, when did God choose? He chose before the foundation of the world. When did God communicate to Rebecca? During the nine months somewhere, right? So please understand, there's a beautiful truth here. God makes decisions before he communicates them to us. So as we see revelation unfolding in the Bible, don't take the opinion that, oh, well, that's when God decided this, and that's when God decided... <laughs> don't limit God to time. He made time, right? That's just something that helped uh, show his glory. And then we come to verse 13. As it is written, and this is where I'm going to leave you with the cliffhanger, all right? We're going to try to resolve some of this next week. As it is written, this is Malachi, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Jacob, I... Love. Do you thinking? Well, that's probably like that Greek word for friends. Like I'm friendly with. No, no, no. It's the Greek word agape. Like, oh, well, that's. Oh, okay. But Esau, I hated. And this is the same word used back in Romans seven fifteen, where Paul talks about uh, I do that which I do not want to do, and I hate it. Right. So this is not a. Oh, I dislike. No, I hate this. So, here's your homework. I want you to read Romans 9, 14 through 29. And I want you to physically write down what does the text say. So, I'll give you an example of this. Who's got verse 14 pulled up? It says, 14, oh, you got it in the NASB. Can you, do the, can you switch to the ESV? Oh, you got it right there? Awesome. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So, I'll give you an example of how I want you to do this. So what does verse 14 say? Verse 14 says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So what is actually being said here? There's no injustice injustice on God's part. So 14 dash, there's no injustice on God's part. Do that for the rest of chapter 9. 
Come back next week, and we're going to talk through some of those statements of this is what this says. This is what, don't get into what does it mean and how does this reconcile. Just, we just want to look at what the words say. We will connect the dots after we understand what they say. Because so often we come to the scriptures with a preconceived idea of what we've been taught, rightly or wrongly, and that influences everything that we read. And we have a tendency to discard things that don't fit flawlessly inside a theological framework. So, what does it say? And we will get to the other sections next week. Now, extra credit. You ready? If you want extra credit, you can go back and read Exodus 33, Exodus 8 and 9, Isaiah 28 and 29. But please, if you don't read any of those, please read through Hosea. Because Hosea is going to be very important to understand Romans 9. Because Hosea is the epic story of unfairness that ends unfairly for somebody who desperately just wanted to be faithful. You will, you will read the book of Hosea and you'll go, but that wasn't a happy story. Yeah, because that's not what he guarantees. He guarantees not to leave us, not to make us happy. So that's your homework for next week. Uh, I'm pumped about Romans 9. I've been waiting to get to Romans 9 about as long as I was waiting to get to Romans 8. I'm very excited about this and trying to be clear about what the text says and what it doesn't. So um, <clears throat> let's take a couple of minutes and at your tables, you've got your weekly update there. So if you can make sure your names are at the bottom of that page, uh, share any prayer requests, and then head on out at a couple of minutes. That'd be great. Thanks for coming to Sunday School today, guys.